Hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Spotlight, the SciComm podcast brought to you by the Science Policy Outreach Task Force at Northwestern University. We chat with graduate students and early career researchers about their work and why they do it. If you're a new listener, we're glad to have you. I highly recommend you check out our first season or any previous episode in this season, where we cover topics ranging from nuclear power to bee ecologies. If you're a returning listener, we're so excited to see you again. My name is Nicholas, and I'm the co-host of the show. Have you ever wondered why some animals are more affected by climate change than others? Ever thought about the bees in the Rocky Mountains? It turns out that these fuzzy flyers might be at risk. Here to tell us all about it is PhD candidate Jacqueline Fitzgerald. Jacqueline is a third-year candidate in the Department of Plant Biology and Conservation in our very own Northwestern University. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, uh, to see you here. So to start us off, the first question that we always ask on the show is, why science? What made you choose this, uh, this, this career path? So I had a bit of a revelation about this recently. Um, when I was in high school, I read a lot of these kind of goofy FBI thriller novels. And a lot of them took place in the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And I can really see how that made an impression on me and just really identified with and was you know, inspired by these characters who were really intensely curious and driven. And the idea of like working in a public science space really made an impression on me. And now my program is run through the Chicago Botanic Garden. I've worked at museums and other botanic gardens in the past. And I'm just really excited about the idea of working in public institutions that connect with science. So you've mentioned that this intense curiosity was the first thing that drove you into science. And you've kind of alluded that you work with the Chicago Botanic Garden, as well as you're in the program for plant biology and conservation. But could you tell us a little bit more about your specific research topic? What's your day to day? What's the big question that you're curious about? Yeah, so I'm interested in understanding why bumblebees are more vulnerable to climate change than other groups of bees, and why some species of bumblebees seem to be more vulnerable. And through that understanding, it will give us a better idea of which species are important to conserve and what sorts of conservation decision making we should be doing. And I am particularly interested in understanding why body size, or in, I'm interested in understanding the connection of bumblebee body size to this vulnerability. There's a lot of evidence that large body bees like bumblebees are more vulnerable to warming temperatures. And there's evidence that bees are getting smaller. So we're losing large body bees at the community level and we're losing large bodied individuals at the population level. But we don't really know why that is. So why are bigger bees more vulnerable and what are the consequences of that? That's very interesting. A little bit odd. I would have never expected that body size was the thing that determined or had some kind of connection to survival rates uh, in the face of climate change. Is there? Do you have any any thoughts as to any hypotheses that that uh, that you're allowed to share? Of course, I do. So body size isn't the whole picture, right? There's a lot of other things that are playing into what makes a species vulnerable, but Body size is this really important master trait that people talk about. It connects to all different aspects of our 
of our lives as humans and animals' lives. So if you know how big an animal is, you know a good deal about its natural history. You can make a lot of inferences about how much land it needs, how much food it needs to eat, how far it can disperse, things like that. And there's also this kind of basic physiological relationship between size and warming, where the bigger you are, the smaller your surface area to volume ratio is. And so that means it's really easy for you to heat up and you cool down more slowly, which is a good thing when it's cold out, but it's not so good when it's warm. Right, of course. That kind of brings me back to all those elementary middle school science classes of body-to-surface body ratios and, 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 and things like that. So, very interesting. Is there a particular reason that you're working in bumblebee communities in the Rocky Mountains? Is there something special about those bees, or do you just really like uh, the Rocky Mountains? Well, I definitely do really like the Rocky Mountains, and there's a couple reasons that I work out there. First, high alpine areas and colder areas in the world are kind of on the front lines of climate change. We're seeing the effects of climate change happening most rapidly there, and where I work, the growing season is really short. There's about five snow-free months out of the year, so it's a really tightly constrained season, and we've been documenting shifts in snowmelt timing for the past 40 or so years. So we know that it's getting warmer. We know that the, the season is expanding because it's, the snow is melting earlier and that snow pack is decreasing and that there's correlated changes in the floral communities. Flowers are blooming earlier and which species are interacting at what times is changing. So that's the context that I'm asking my questions is, is this like the system that is undergoing rapid change, you know, change that, that we can see from year to year. The other reason I'm, I'm working out there is that I work at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, which is a field station up at about nine and a half thousand feet in the Rockies. It has a really long history of ecological research. So we have these long-term data sets that I, I'm able to connect with to understand how my work fits into these long-term patterns that we're seeing you know, of changing climate, of changing, uh, of changing floral landscape. My lab has led a bumblebee monitoring project at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory for the past seven years, where we've been monitoring which species are active, which species are present, uh, what do they eat, when are they there, all of the above. And so I'm able to connect my work to this long-term data set to understand how body size correlates to broader population level patterns. That's obviously a very interesting uh, approach design, certainly very different to a, to a lot of what I think people think of, like, I think the bench sciences, you know. So it's very cool. Do you like the Rockies? <laughs> Are you an outdoor field person? Is this one of the reasons that uh, you began getting involved in more conservation-oriented research? Yes, it's definitely part of the appeal is that I get to live, you know, in a remote field station for almost half the year. This year I was there for five months. I snowshoed in in April, and I was there until the leaves turned. So I was really capturing the full season. It's a pretty good place to be. Wow. I'm very <laughs> jealous. That sounds gorgeous. <laughs> so we've discussed your research. We've discussed the Rockies. But why bees in particular? Um, are you just a particular aficionado of, of honey? Or or are bees particularly important to, to the community? They are. Yeah. And so, you know, bumblebees don't really produce honey that we can eat. They do store some in their nests, which I've tried and it tastes pretty good. But 
you know, honeybees are just one species of the nearly 20,000 species of bees on, on the planet. And all of those species are really important for both our food system and for the wild plants and animals. The majority of flowering plants on the planet rely on animal pollination. And of those animal pollinators, bees are the most abundant, the most diverse, and the most effective. And so we really rely on them for you know, our, our tomatoes, for our blueberries, you know, for coffee. Yeah, they're really important for our crops. And they're also important for the diversity of wild plants around the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The di- that diversity of, of of plants in the face of climate change is, is something we've uh, we've previously discussed in, on the podcast. So it's interesting to see uh, another connection to it. Obviously, it's a very daunting, uh, I, I guess, problem that we're facing. So it's good to see so many different uh, approaches to it. So obviously, climate change is this big question, and bees are an almost, I think, ever-present part of, uh, of people's perception. But how aware do you think the general public is of, uh, of this question that you're studying? Do you really think that people think about um, climate change and, and bees? And if so, what do you think is, is the perception that they have of it? Is it a correct perception or is it something that you would like to uh, illuminate them on? I think most of the conversations people have about bees and climate change focus on honeybees. And, you know, for most of the general public, honeybees are what they think of when they think of bees. But they're really just one species of many, and they're not native to the United States. Honeybees are an introduced species from Europe, and they aren't found in the wild in North America. They're essentially managed animals. They're a lot closer to livestock than, you know, a wild insect, a wild bee. And so when people talk about saving the bees, which I think there is a, you know, a good understanding that bees are important for our ecosystems and for our food supply, but saving the honeybees, you know, one, they don't really need to be saved, you know, in the same way that, you know, like the polar bears need to be saved. These are in essence, domestic animals. And honeybees are very, very different from our native bees, most of which are not social like honeybees are. They don't have queens and workers. There's you know just males and females. They live a really different lifestyle. I mean, they're called solitary bees. They live their lives alone. They don't form group connections. They don't have these big hives. And it's our native bees that you know really represent the wealth of diversity and are important for pollinating our native crops and our native flowers and all the above. Yeah, that's a good point. I think most people, when they think of bees, they think exclusively of, uh, of, I guess, the pop culture bee, which is is the honeybee living in the hive, which dripping with honey has has been, I guess, a staple of a lot of children's stories. I've never actually heard about the, uh, the other species of bees uh, in, in in the U.S. or or in the world, really. Obviously, we uh, we had uh, a conversation with with, a pre- with another member of your lab in the previous season, and there we found out about a different kind of bee. And bumblebees are obviously uh, another species, but I at least was unaware of this huge diversity of of bees in the United States. So, how do you study bees? 
do you catch them and measure their body size and track them to see how they fare? Um, kind of what's your day-to-day look look like? Obviously, it's very different from uh, from anything I'm, I'm, I've experienced. Yeah, so my field, day-to-day field work is pretty low-tech. I walk around you know, these long-established sites that we have out in the Rockies, and I look for bees to catch. And I'm, all of my sampling is uh, non-destructive. It's, it's not lethal. I try to be as minimally, you know, disturb them as little as possible. And after I find a bee, I catch it in my net. And then I've built a contraption that I call the bee squeezer, which is a lot more kind of draconian than it actually, it sounds more draconian than it really is. In essence, it's about a one and a half inch wide tube that I've sawed off the end of, and I've glued fabric mesh to one end, and then I have some sponge glued to a popsicle stick that I get the bee inside the tube, and then I can use that sponge to gently press the bee up to the fabric mesh where I can really gently restrain them, measure them really quickly. I put a little bit of paint on their back so I know which individuals I've marked, and then I let them go. And then I just do that for eight hours a day, six days a week for five months. So it's, it's a lot of time outside looking at flowers. I can imagine. It sounds oddly calming, I think, hiking around looking for, for bees. It's pretty good. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, I do data wrangling to try to make sense of all of that. I guess that's the, the often undiscussed part of part of the science is, is making sense of all the data. Yes. All the, you know, first you have to enter all, all of it, you know, and which is an, an undertaking in and of itself. How hard is it to find the same bee that, uh, that you've already measured? Do you, do you track individual bees or is it just general bee populations? So I don't track individual bees. Um, I mark them on their backs primarily so that I'm, I'm not resampling the same individual bees are their size is fixed when they're adults. So they are not going to grow across the season or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And what I'm interested in is documenting the, the breadth of variation in size across species within species between and within casts. So that's like Queens versus workers versus male bees. And then across the season as well, who is active at what time in the Rockies where I, I work, there are, roughly 30 species of bumblebees in Colorado. And I have about 20 represented in my study. And they're really diverse. You know, bumblebees as a group, you know, there's some things that they all have in common, right? Like they're, they're large, they're hairy, they're social, but there's a lot of variation in in life history, even within that broad group. You know, so we have very large bumblebee species that are active for a much shorter part of the season, and tend to be more specialized in their diet. They visit only a subset of the flowers and we have others that are a lot smaller and, you know, they come out really early when there's still snow on the ground and they're able to visit a much broader range of flowers. And so I'm interested in understanding, like, you know, how does size really connect to these two life history traits that seem really important, both their diet breadth, how many species of flowers are they able to visit, and the time that they're active. And then what does that mean as both the floral community and the climate are changing? So you're looking at different sizes across different species of bumblebee. Yes, and also within species. That that within species variation is maybe what I'm most interested in. We have kind of rough senses of 
you know, X species is, is this size on average. But it's that variation around the mean that seems to be most important in who is the most vulnerable. Even if two species are the same average size, if one of them, the workers are really clustered around that one average size versus another species where there's a lot of spread. They have, a, you know, both very small and very large workers. And if those different bees are able to tolerate different types of conditions, you know, say m maybe large bees can't fly when it's hot. If you lack variation, then maybe you can't send out foragers, you know, if, if it gets too hot during the day. But if you do have a lot of variation, maybe that allows you to have some bet hedging in, in your strategy. So are you looking at evolutionary trajectories? Because obviously you mentioned that adult bees are, are fixed in size. So what's the generational time for a bee? I've never really thought about this before. Yeah, so they have a pretty interesting life history strategy. So bumblebees don't live more than a year. You know, so the queens are the longest lived of, of in any caste. And the queens that you see in the spring were born the previous year. So those, those queens, you know, they're born in the fall. They're you know, hopefully mated right off the bat. And then they'll go underground into what we call diapause. It's basically insect hibernation. And if they successfully survive diapause and emerge in the spring following the winter, then those queens are totally on, on their own and they have to found their colony. And so that involves finding a, a good place to start have their nest, to start foraging, both to replenish her, her food stores because she hasn't eaten since about October or September, and to start provisioning for her brood. So to start laying eggs, which will turn into workers, which will then ultimately kind of manage the foraging needs of the colony. And those workers probably only live four to six weeks out of the year. And there might be a couple different kind of groups of workers produced in the colony. But you know, for where I work in the Rockies, a colony may only exist for four months out of the year or less. Wow. Yeah. And so there's a lot of points during the cycle where they're really vulnerable, you know, like spring when the queens emerge, when the, the timing of when they're emerging you know, if that's if the synchrony of that and the floral resources they rely on changes, that's obviously a huge issue. And if the winter conditions themselves are changing, that can affect which queens successfully survive. And you know, not just surviving overwintering, but then to go on and to successfully found a colony. That's very interesting. I never really thought about, um, I guess, cla class, cast, different cast, yeah, cast, cast differences. Yes. Uh, affecting, I guess, a bee's longevity. Although I guess it kind of does make sense. Okay. Well, so if someone were listening to this episode and they were to understand or remember one thing and one thing only about this fascinating research that you're doing, what is it that you'd want to spotlight? So for most species of bees and really for most species on Earth, we know basically nothing about their natural history. You know, where, when do they live? Where do they live? When are they active? What do they eat? Who do they interact with? And in order to protect this biodiversity, we really need that detailed firsthand knowledge of how these species actually live their lives. And it's through that basic understanding of their ecology that we're able to better protect them and conserve them for future generations. That is certainly an important thing to keep in mind. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your research is Super interesting, uh, and I've certainly learned a lot. I hope everyone listening to this uh, also has. 
So listeners, I also want to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this podcast out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. This podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.